Hello everyone, this is Nabit Negapon. You might know me from Homeland, Legion, Aladdin, the actor who plays the big bad wolf. We are here on Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is David Packhouse, a different kind of guest for this podcast. You know, the tagline of the podcast is music and much more. Well, David straddles that line. On the music side, he started a company called Singular Sound, a music technology company that launched with a product called the Beat Buddy. We'll find out all about that. And on the other side, he started out as, get this, an arms merchant. And he got a contract with his company from the Department of Defense to supply the Afghan army with ammunition and weapons. That deal ultimately went bad, and he suffered the consequences. And his story was made into a book and then a movie called War Dogs, in which David was played by the actor Miles Teller. How about that? We're going to talk all about that as well. And you know that in every episode of the podcast, I feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make that song relevant somehow. And in this instance, I've chosen the song Tree of Life from the album PGS7. Why? Well, I went contrarian this time. David sold guns, and my song is a somber anti-gun song that I wrote in the aftermath of a tragic mass shooting in 2018 at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Unfortunately, we've had so many more mass shootings since that time. In any event, David Packhouse, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thank you for having me. All right. So you got this fascinating story, and I want to hear about it. How did you become an arms merchant? Give me the, the Reader's Digest version of this. All right. I'll give you, I'll try to make it as uh, brief as possible for people who want to get the details. I recommend that they watch the movie War Dogs, or if they want to get the absolute true story, because that's a Hollywood version, I would recommend that they read the book War Dogs, which they can find on Amazon. It's under the same name. It was written by a Rolling Stone a writer, a journalist. So in my early 20s, I was going to college and I bumped into an old friend of mine uh, who I had grown up with. He had learned the arms business from his uncle. His uncle owned a big pawn shop, had gotten into selling weapons and ammunition to the government. He went to work for his uncle, learned it from him. Then he left his uncle and came back to Miami, started his own company, started doing really well selling to the federal government uh, weapons and ammunition. And he asked me to join him because he was doing really well. 
And so we started working together. We started winning a whole bunch of different contracts. And after about nine months of working together, we won the biggest small arms contract in, in history. It was worth $300 million. And it was to supply the Afghan National Army with uh, weapons and ammunition. And at the time, the Afghan National Army was our allies after we had kicked out the Taliban. Uh, this is back in 2007. So part of the contract, it was around 30 different types of munitions, everything from small arms like pistol or rifle ammo, all the way up to like tank shells and anti-aircraft rockets. But some of the ammunition that we were delivering it was for the AK-47. Uh, coming from Albania, we discovered after we had already committed to deliver that ammunition that it had originally come from China. And our contract specifically forbade us from delivering ammunition from China. So we were faced with a choice. We could either uh, you know, tell the government about it and risk losing the contract, or we could not tell the government about it, and hopefully they don't notice anything. And so we decided for the second choice. And the way they and they ended up found, finding out about it because the guy we hired to uh, repackage the ammunition because we wanted to hide the fact that it was Chinese, so we hired someone to to take the ammunition out of the original boxes that had Chinese markings all over it and repackage it into other boxes, and my partner decided to switch packaging providers and that really pissed off the original packaging guy and he went to the New York Times and told them what we were doing and he went to the FBI and told them what we were. Doing. Doing. And so they started an, an investigation. Don't you go to jail for stuff like this? So you can. Uh, and so what happened was, uh, at first they actually told us. Uh, well, so my ex, so at this time, my partner decided that he didn't want to pay me what we had agreed upon, and so I left the company, and I decided to sue him for the money that he owed me because he wanted to give me nothing. So at the time, so the uh, the government came to me and said, "Hey, you know, you're not even in this company. You're not a target of investigation. So we just want to interview you." And so I talked to them and they said, you know, you're not a target. So, but then six months later, and they, they didn't even charge my ex-partner with anything. They seemed like they were just going to let the case die. Um, I think because the, the U.S. Army was very intent on receiving the ammunition. So they, they were kind of pushing back against the, uh, the Justice Department. They were like, don't rock the boat. We need this ammo. So don't, don't do anything, at least until we get the ammo. So ultimately, the army did get the ammo? Yeah, they did. And they used it. And they were happy with it. And they were happy with the quality. Even though it had Chinese lettering all over it. Uh, so they apparently knew that it was Chinese while they were receiving it because the Justice Department informed them. But they continued taking delivery even after they were informed for another six months because they didn't really care as long as it was under the radar and it wasn't making a stink. But then about six months later, the New York Times published a front page article, you know, and they made a big deal about how young we were. And they also said that we were delivering low quality ammunition and putting soldiers' lives in danger, which was not actually true. Uh, the 99.9% .9 of the ammo we delivered was perfectly 
uh, working quality. There was a very small quantity that had been rejected by the government and we were not paid for and was not issued to soldiers. And the government had put that at the side of the runway in Kabul. And that's what the New York Times reporter saw and took pictures of and put on the front page. So and then they implied that everything we were delivering was of this quality. So this became a big international scandal. And pretty much every major newspaper in the world reprinted the New York Times article. And a week after that, the suddenly the Justice Department came back and said, oh, you know, we're charging you with fraud because you were lying about the source of the ammunition. You were saying it was from Albania, but originally it was from China. And you hired someone to hide the fact that it was from China. So that is fraud. Now, usually fraud, when if you, whether you go to jail or not for fraud, your, your amount of jail time is dependent on the law to the victim, right? You know, depending on what you defrauded the victim out of. But in this case, the government actually saved money. They didn't lose any money uh, because we were supplying the best price. So the way they figured it is what's the cost of the government of taking away our contract and giving it to someone else? And it was only about $150,000. That's, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, relatively low compared to a $300 million contract. So that was what they could charge us with. And so we both pled guilty. I ended up getting sentenced to just seven months of house arrest, which was, uh, you know, a huge relief for me. Um, but my ex-partner, you know, one of, one of the things that you have to do uh, when you do it, when you plead guilty, is you sign a plea agreement, right, admitting your wrongdoing, and the prosecutors agree that they will ask the judge to give you a minimal sentence in return for for pleading guilty. But part of the agreement is that you can't commit additional crimes before you get sentenced, because then how are the prosecutors going to say that you're going to reformed person and going to be a good citizen from now on if you commit more crimes? I would think it's a no-no to keep going out and committing crimes, okay? So yes, I'm, yes. I'm with you on that. So my partner couldn't stay out of the business, and he kept on doing the business, and he ended up falling for a sting operation from the ATF, and uh, he got caught with this second thing. And so then that invalidated his plea agreement. And so they, the government said, this guy deserves to go to jail for this thing and the original thing. And so he ended up getting four years in prison. So they threw the book at him. Yeah. All right. So you have this international scandal. You're on the front page of the New York Times. And I assume that's how the book got started, because somebody, yes. the author must have seen this whole thing. Exactly. So the New York Times published this front page article, and that got the attention of Rolling Stone, who loves these kinds of stories. And they sent a, uh, a journalist to interview me and interview him and the other people involved. And the uh, the Rolling Stone journalist, Guy Lawson is his name, uh, wrote this very long article in Rolling Stone about our story. And that article was seen by Todd Phillips, who's the director of the Hangover movies. And he thought that this would make a great movie. And so he bought the rights to the story and made the movie War Dogs. Now, hold on a second. Did he buy the rights from the Rolling Stone guy or did you get rights as well that you sold to him? So both, actually. Um, so the way it works in the United States is he was not actually legally required to pay either of us for the rights to anything. So if something is published in a newspaper, it's considered part of the public domain, and you can make an artwork based on anything in the public domain uh, because it's freedom of speech. 
that's how they see it. So they could have made, they could have used my name and said anything they want about me as whether it's true or not, and not given me a penny. And that's completely legal. However, usually for a big budget film like this, for big budget Hollywood film, they want to get the cooperation of the people who were part of the story because that makes for a better story, get better details, it becomes more authentic. So they did purchase my life rights, as they call it, which is the the rights to my life story up until that point. Uh, so yeah, so that was, I made more money from that than I did from the arms dealing because my ex-partner screwed me out of all the money that he owed me. I mean, it's kind of funny. You had the contract, he screwed you out of that contract, but yeah. because of the movie, you made out okay. Yeah, exactly. And it's also interesting because the my house arrest from this whole incident brought me directly into the music business. That's how I, I started my company. And that's uh, uh, an interesting story. All right, let's do that transition because you went from being an arms dealer into the music business. Yes. And you got the benefit of this movie about this terrible incident in your life that worked out for you, gave you some money that allowed you to start your business. Is that how it worked? Not exactly, because the the movie, I didn't get the money for that until like 2016 when the movie came out, but I was under house arrest in 2011. And so the way it worked, the, what happened was while I was under house arrest, I've been playing, I'm a guitar player. So I've been playing guitar since I was 15. I'm also a singer, singer songwriter. And, uh, you know, since I was under house arrest, I was playing a lot of guitar and uh, I'd have my, you know, my friends come visit me uh, to jam. But of course I couldn't get any drummer to come over because nobody's going to bring their whole drum set over just for a jam session. And anyway, I had a you know, relatively small apartment at the time and it would have woken up all the neighbors. So I really missed playing with a drummer in particular because, you know, the drums, the beat gives the energy to the music. All right. I just have to ask this question. When you're under house arrest. Yeah. Does that literally mean you can't leave the house? So they do make exceptions. So you could leave the house for work and things of that nature, but you have to tell them exactly where you're going to be and when you're going to be back. So it's more of like just a monitoring. They just, they have an ankle tracker on your ankle. Got the ankle bracelet. Yeah, yeah got the ankle bracelet. But if you want to go out and get some milk or ice cream or something, you can do that? You have to have everything, uh, you have to have your schedule approved a week in advance. <laughs> So, so you have to, like, you can't just leave on the spur of the moment, you know, you have to tell your probation officer, your parole officer that, uh, uh, you know, you're planning on working from th at this place, from this time to this time, you're going to go shopping at this time to this time, and you'll be back at this time. So it's not a, it's not like you can't leave the house ever. I would say the, the, uh, the coronavirus lockdowns were way harsher than, uh, than a standard, um, uh, you know, house arrest kind of thing. All right. I got to ask you another silly question. Okay. But people want to know about this stuff. Yeah. You got an ankle bracelet on. Are you allowed to take that off at all? I mean, what if you're taking a shower or whatever? Is it on all the time? All the time. You cannot take it off ever. And they actually have a, um, a metal wire that goes through the band that will send a signal out if you cut it. So they lock it on your ankle. And if you cut it, then they can tell and they immediately get informed and they head over to your house and see what the heck's going on. So interesting. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. As you know by now, I'm a musician too. 
I've released 13 acclaimed albums, including a Billboard number one, and I've had millions of video views and streams. I infuse my music into the podcast in several ways. In each episode, I feature one of my songs underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guest. I also regularly write and record new music, and I release all of my new music via the podcast to my audience consisting of thousands of listeners from 200 countries. It's like I'm performing a concert on a worldwide basis. If you haven't done so yet, I invite you to check out all of my music and my band, Project Grand Slam, by going to the band's website, projectgrandslam.com and at the pgsstore.com. You can also find all of our videos on YouTube and you can stream our music on Spotify, Apple, and all the other streaming services. By the way, the song you're hearing underneath my voice right now is called Metro Shuffle. It's from the Project Grand Slam album, The PGS Experience, and it features the great Mindy Abair on saxophone. It's become my go-to theme song for the podcast. As always, I want to thank you for listening to the podcast and to my music, and we'll see you in the next episode. All right, so you start this company. Tell me about the company and tell me about this product, this Beat Buddy product of yours. Right. So I had the idea for the Beat Buddy while I was under house arrest. So I bought a drum machine because I wanted to have a beat to play along to, you know, to accompany my guitar playing. But every time I wanted to, you know, go from like verse to chorus, for example, I'd have to stop playing my guitar, press a button on the machine to change the beat, go back to playing my guitar. And I thought to myself, man, that's really annoying. I wish that I could just have a drum machine in the form of a guitar pedal so that I could control it with my foot. I could like trans, you know, change the beat with my foot. And so I can keep on playing. And I went online to look for something. I'm sure someone made something like this, but all I could find were like some basic looper pedals that they, you can put a beat on it, but you can't change the beat. So it's just a repetitive beat. It's kind of like a backing track, which is the same thing as having a drum machine. I mean, if you want to change the beat, you have to fiddle with it. So I realized, I asked my musician friends if they'd seen anything like what I was thinking about. They'd never seen anything like it, but they all wanted one. So I thought, well, if everyone wants one and uh, nobody's making it, well, this is my big opportunity to move on with my life and make something useful. So that's how I came up with the product Beat Buddy, like your buddy that plays the beat. All right. We have been speaking here with David Packhouse, who's had quite an interesting life. He went from being an arms merchant to a convicted felon to starting a music company that's got a lot of stuff going on for the music aficionados out there. David, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. What an interesting story. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Now we're going to listen to that song of mine that started the podcast. It's called Tree of Life. 
I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Find a better way today.